happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Zeit gang, you like to watch new stuff, right? I mean, who doesn't? I do. Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time, like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama, a new season of The Kardashians starring the Kardashians, of course, and Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's streaming now, and it's waiting for you on Hulu. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, the internet, and welcome to season 252, episode 2 of The Daily Zeitgeist, yeah! a production of iHeartRadio. This is a podcast where we take a deep dive into America's shared consciousness. It's Tuesday, August 30th, 2022, which of course means it's, you know it's what? getting, getting Shout up Shout out to my dad. It's his birthday today. Hey. Yeah, so that's Shout his birthday to today. Uh, Big Todd, shout out to you, and also National Beach Day, National Toasted Marshmallow Day. National Huge. Beach Day coming on, coming late in the summer. I love yeah. it. Yeah, is it because maybe like Labor Day is like they're sort of saying like, here's your last kind of yeah, your last, your last chance, assholes, get it yeah. in. <laughs> I think that's the voice that my Beach Day speaks in. <laughs> Just very, it's like a bully. <laughs> It's like, I don't it's really like, like an exhausted bully or like a mean gym teacher. Right. All right. right. <laughs> Dipshits. Enough jackassing around. Get out there to the beach. <laughs> Get out there. I know you're going to be on the beach chasing girls. All right. Anyways, my name's Jack O'Brien, a.k.a. Yo Jack Horseman. I think that's going to be a <laughs> regular one. That's courtesy of Miles Gray. And I'm thrilled to be joined by uh, my co-host, Mr. Miles Gray. Oh, you know what? It's Miles Gray. Uh, just still feeling that Valley Pride, the Lord of Lancashire, Hideo Noho, is back in the building. Experimental artist, your boy, Kasama. So thank you <laughs> for having me. Uh, well, Miles, we're thrilled to be joined by a designer, activist, curator, CEO of Epic Decade, the author of the new book, Radical Curiosity, Questioning Commonly Held Beliefs to Imagine Flourishing Futures. It's yes. Seth Goldenberg! Seth! What's, What's up, up, Seth? That, not much. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, thanks for doing it. Absolutely. Where are you coming to us from out there in the world? I am in New York City today. Okay. All right. How's the weather? Good. Muggy. 
Huh? All right. Oh yeah, I, thought, I think <laughs> on Friday, our, some of our people who work in New York, like it's a storm right now. Uh, right, so, right. Yeah. It's a storm right now. It's a storm right now. Weather report. <laughs> I like to tune into the weather <laughs> channel right and now. have them tell me it's a storm right now, <laughs> Bob. Uh, if you're back to you. yeah, back to and you, yeah. you tell tell us what is Epic Decade? What you guys are like? Kind of a, a lot of things. Right. We we are a lot of things. Epic Decade is a design studio. We are a merry band of biologists and anthropologists and graphic designers and strategic thinkers who take on big complex challenges. Nice. How'd that all come together? I, I've I've read a few interviews with you and, and a little bit of your book, and I know you talk about the salons of yore. Uh and is that sort of like that was a big inspiration or you also or it seems to me just with how you look at the world you think everything is multifaceted henceforth it's always good to have a diverse palette of opinions to sort of take something on yeah absolutely yeah i mean i i began as a as an artist as a painter first and foremost i was i went to rhode island school designed i went to art school to be an oil painter and only (laughs) kind of recently wandered into the field of design. But I think whether you're an artist or a designer, for me, it's all about asking questions. So, you know, this book really, for me, was a way to make sense of a very interdisciplinary practice, but kind of simplify it down to say, no matter what kind of craft, what kind of format, what kind of industry work we're we're working in, we are asking the thorniest, craziest, most essential questions of our time. All right. Well, we're going to get to some of those craziest essential questions. First, we're going to tell our listeners a couple of things we're talking about. I mean, mainly we're going to we're going to talk about your book, just the the subject of imagination and curiosity and a thing we talk about a lot on this show being that we we lack the imagination for something different, a different version of uh, how how we come together. It's either what we've been given in this like sort of status quo of the Western world with like a market that kind of dictates everything, or it's a dystopia, like it's uh, Mad Max, that, and there's like not not much else. And those that's are, it. <laughs> the, those are the two versions that, that we have. So we want to talk to you about why that is, what you think some solutions are for that, and just generally have a far-ranging conversation if we have time we might even get to uh breitbart's hunter biden movie which is in no way related to that but it is i yeah i guess it is it's art (laughs) it's great art and we're excited for it so we're, we're we're gonna maybe talk about that but uh before we get to any of it seth we do like to ask our guests what is something from your search history that's revealing about who you are or where you are as a person but yeah, I've been thinking a lot about food recently and how I don't know about you guys, but I don't I don't know what to do when I get into the grocery store. It's like there's like a hundred thousand <laughs> options and I gotta get in, I gotta get out. It's like, you know, I'm like uh weaving through like it's a football match. Uh-huh. But I I've been uh thinking about nutrition for my own health and I, I Googled how many nutritionists are in the right. United States. Right. Wow. How, how, how many, how many people are in the business of nutrition that that is their expertise. They formally register with the government as 
the you know labor statistics i identify as a nutritionist 66,000 that's a is, lot is that a lot or a little i'm trying to wrap my head around like how comparatively i, I was going to guess 12 it's so scary how few right <laughs> no way think about it like this there's millions and millions of people growing food but just 60,000 helping us understand what to put <laughs> what in our bodies right. right 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 yeah 330 million americans 66,000 People are actually knowing how to consume food. It's good ratios. Good ratios. Mm. I like yeah. those odds for our healthcare right. system for sure. There, there you go. <laughs> I feel like the there's not really a great authority, right? Like it, even the nutritional information that we get is pretty contradictory, and studies come out that debunk other studies. But I feel like just generally, when I see a study that is like. Dark chocolate and red wine are the keys to long life, which are the the two studies that seem to come up every month since I was born in the right. 80s. Like that, that I don't know, it, it seems very confusing and like there's no real center of gravity when it comes to like our nutritional information. I attribute that largely to the fact that like the government doesn't fund any sort of central nutritional thing and so it's all just like different people trying to find different ways to make money and like massive corporations lobbying and stuff like that but what do you what are your thoughts on like sort of the organization let let alone the you know number the sheer mass of nutritionists in, in the country like what how do you feel about like how we get our information on nutrition well i th i think that we know very little about food right a surprising and scary amount of information. And it's not even about information. I think it's food as a whole culture and set of traditions and, and lifestyles. And, you know, I have no real literacy about my experience of food. Right. If you think about it, right? You go to, when you go to school, we have literacy for reading we have literacy for mathematics we have literacy we have a language for so many parts of our lives but hundreds of millions of people around the world don't have a language a kind of health literacy for their experience of food mm -hmm. convenience and price have become the predominant variables right and it's right. really really killing us right yeah yeah i i can remember it's like the most literacy i have is like eat eat vegetables at least i think that's like where my <laughs> like nutrition literacy sort of bottoms out where it's like well i know that i mean like you got to balance shit aside from that then you read constantly stuff where it's like man you have one serving of dairy that like ups your chances of these kinds of cancers like and you're like oh, what huh i but i had vegetables what what but am dairy I make bones strong Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, th I think, you know, uh, it really relates to some of the core ideas in the book, right? And I love that you open with imagination. I mean, we're raised inside of a variety of what I call legacy narratives. Mm -hmm. And those legacy narratives about food or about home or about family or about money, the these ideas are, I call them legacies because they're they're inherited. You know, we're born into them. 
the decisions about these things happened long before we showed up. And they're indoctrinated, they're institutionalized, they're rooted into many facets of our lives. And we don't even ask questions about them, right? Right. Yeah, I feel like nutrition has gone through, like in, in my lifetime, it was like the calories and fat content and all all these sort of variables that we were meant to pay attention to. And like during that time, we have seen like the how healthy people eat just like go in the in the absolute shitter <laughs> like just <laughs> in terms of yeah i mean like just you know the obesity epidemic people just generally i think feel much worse and like it i think you know michael pollan has written about the idea of like you know breaking foods down into these like component parts where it's like there are these four numbers that you need to know about each of your foods and how foreign that is from long term you know deep historical information that people had about food that that was just i think somewhat erased, erased by our understanding of of right. culture but yeah yeah. That evolution is wild, too, because it's like food as nutrition versus food as coping mechanism, which, right. you know, a lot of the times I'll I'll make food decisions and be like, you know what? Fuck my health for this yeah. meal. Like, I want to eat this. And it's not just like the... considering what like on a continuum, how much of this have I been eating? Is yeah. that good? Do I need to interrupt that? But a lot of the time it's sort of dictated by like what I'm feeling in the moment rather than what you're talking about is even like a literacy around what my body actually needs, which occasionally it does. And like, I go into a full on craving for like <laughs> vegetables and things. Cause I think my body's yeah. like, Hey asshole, enough with the taco bell. <laughs> Fuck my health being often the entire thesis statement of a meal from like, <laughs> right, I'm going right. to do some damage here. Let's, right, uh, right. let's go nuts. What is something you think is overrated? Seth? History. History. All right. What? Well, what well, just boring. You're like snooze fest. <laughs> well, I say I say it to be a little provocative. I think sure. I think we're imprisoned by much of our history. I think that history can be beautiful. History can be critical, uh, but at times I think it holds us back, and uh, I think we need to up the ante on the courage to unchain ourselves from that history and author what the future might look like, right? So yeah. if history is overrated, future is underrated. Mm. I mean, as a designer, I'm a kind of futurist. My job is to help organizations invent the future. And the number one thing that holds people back is a comfort with a history that is recognizable. Right. Yeah. And, and just like default narratives, right? Like that, like that, that's something that I feel like I came out of my education feeling like history was pretty settled. And that was sort of toxic to my, my ability to feel like curiosity about the world was a lot of what I learned in history, which was like dates and figures and like this thing happened. And that's, indisputable and, and yeah. yeah and that's that and that's that the and, that's the tidy yeah. explanation for all of this yeah what's 
Uh, Seth, do you like what's sort of like the most insidious way that our sort of attachment to history sort of like undermines like our well-being, our ability to improve life? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it even even your your gesture there of, you know, that happened. I mean, most of how we retell history is not objective. Right. Right. So it's it's not as clean as this is what happened. Right. Those who win get to tell the story. Right. 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 So there's a fascinating dynamic about history where it's hard to not imagine that much of the narratives we embody as we learn from history has an ideological bent or has a particular bias or a point of view, whether that's cultural, whether that's race, whether that's who who and what perspective told the story. But I think when you ask what holds us back, it's as though whoever won told mm-hmm. the story and telling the story is a form of power. And so there's a power that holds over us about the particular models that we learn and live by that get passed on as a tradition, right? I mean, I, I tell a joke sometimes. I saw a great meme that says, you know, history is peer pressure from dead people, right? Mm, right. And, and I think part of what we're going through right now is information and knowledge is flat, and there's never been a shorter distance between information and the power to invent an alternative. And so for me, I love the idea that we can author new histories in real time and that what we're seeing in some ways, a great deal of the kind of friction and kind of birthing pains that I believe our culture is going through right now is is an expression of a legacy narrative, that history, kind of dissolving. Right. And new challenger narratives, new ways of seeing and inhabiting the world are being born. And that's like stretch marks to society, right? Like when you see a protest, I mean, when you see an event, when you see Black Lives Matter, that's not just a protest of that city's encounter. That is a symbol of an old narrative and a new narrative in collision. Right. So the past and the future are constantly kind of pulling and tugging up against one another. And it'd be interesting if we understood what's happening in contemporary life in that way. So we could detangle ourselves from narratives that frankly aren't working for us anymore. Mm. Mm. Like functionally, like, I mean, like what's something specifically, right? Like if you're taking something like I feel like you talk about these legacy narratives. I think one that's like really eroding is this idea that like after World War II, the United States was one of the most fantastic places on earth to be, <laughs> you know? And it's like, look at everything they had. But then most people were like, wasn't like that for my family back then. It wasn't like this for this. And then we also get these sort of, the, like you're saying, this friction of people saying like, well, if it's so bad, you should leave. Or these people not wanting to let go of this idea that it was so mm. clean cut that, this was prosperity experienced by all. Then something just went wrong. You mm. know, I'm, I'm curious, like so in looking at things like that, how how was it, you know, I guess to keep it to like American popular, like American society or cultural history, 
Like, what's a thing that you feel Americans should very quickly let go of? Well, I think I think it's for me the idea of narrative. It's not so much that it's not like the American dream, sure. although that is, of course, a, a, a narrative, a story we tell ourselves. It's kind of like even just the basic idea of of uh, you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like mm-hmm. we're very occupied at Epic Decade with how we will live, learn, work play and sustain ourselves like the five big questions of human existence right so if you took health live right if you took learn education i mean an example i often give is if you ask anybody in america is k-12 public education working for every child and is the most beautiful most innovative most glorious experience on the planet they'd say no but at the same time, we throw you in prison if you don't go. Mm-hmm. Right? Welcome to truancy. So right. we have these kind of ideologies that are kind of in conflict, these paradoxes that we've adopted and kind of just put on autopilot. Like the hospital is a place to get healthy. Actually, maybe, maybe not. Right? Right. Food is food. All food is good. It will give you energy. Maybe, maybe not. Right. We were just talking. I think. You know, it's and it's not that it's like yes or no, or mm-hmm. like we need to let go of something. It's like, you know, the idea of radical curiosity is simply to ask questions about things that we just assumed are on autopilot. Right. Yeah. And it's more for me, what I would advocate for is things that seemed unbreakable are kind of dissolving around us. In my lifetime, banks that were untouchable dissolve in front of our eyes through the financial crisis right. right in my lifetime questions you couldn't ask out loud are there 57 genders right holy shit my grandparents grew up it was unconceivable that there was anything other than a male or a female right these aren't just like american ideas or even western ideas our whole world is revisiting what it means to be human right now. So core, core things like gender, how long we live, you know, it should, should all society be capitalistic? Welcome to presidents running on uh, universal basic income platforms where we give away money for free. These are, they're small little, what I call upending indicators. Mm-hmm. but they're not small. We're in the process of rebooting the operating system of the human condition right now. It's a fascinating time to be alive. If you know what questions to ask. Right. All right. Let's, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll kind of keep this conversation going. We'll be right back. Zeit gang, customers are rushing to your store, but do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it, you know, like a literal POS? Well, you need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Connect with customers inline and online. Look, you want to use TikTok? Well, guess what? They have plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns on platforms just like that. Get hardware that fits your business, take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, 
or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Now, I was looking at Shopify.com, and I'm trying to get some answers. Let's say, uh, you know, how to bustling retail business and i need you know maybe uh, some hardware to be able to sell my wares on the street take credit card payments whatever and i know shopify is easy to use half the time i buy something online i'm like oh yep they're using shopify and if you need to learn more check out their website it's super easy to navigate whether you have questions about how you can optimize your inventory or again looking for hardware to make sales easier shopify.com has all of that just go there check it out so sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash tdz all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TDZ to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash TDZ. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. You like to watch new stuff, right, Zygang? I know I do. Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time, like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump. Join Lisa and her hand-selected staff at Chateau Rosabelle, a glamorous estate in the French countryside, as they live, work, and play together 24-7. Vanderpump Villa is where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. And don't miss the new season of The Kardashians, uh, starring The Kardashians, of course, and Season 5 promises new horizons for the entire Kardashian clan. And if you're looking for steamy streams, check out Grand Cayman Secrets in Paradise. The sizzling new reality show set on the tropical Caribbean island of Grand Cayman, where the rich come to play. But be warned, it's a small island, and secrets don't stay secret for long. So come check out what's new on Hulu this month. It's streaming now, and it's waiting for you on Hulu. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And uh, Seth, you were kind of talking about your overrated being history and, you know, future as an underrated. Like how, as a futurist, how do you think about the future? And like, you know, it is interesting to think that like we have an entire class and major, almost every university that is history but like nothing about the nothing really about the future i guess science would be the realm of the future and kind of the traditional understanding of of how this stuff works but how do you how do you think about the future and and how like kids should be thinking about the future how we should be teaching people to think about the future 
Well, I, I love that question. I mean, I, I love that you brought up the uh, Mad Max uh, example earlier in the discussion, right? Right. There's, there's a section of the book where I talk about the big business of dystopian filmmaking, right? Mm-hmm. Mad Max is a great example. There's 50 in the past 10 years that have made tens of billions of dollars all in, right? Right. Somehow we have gotten a little more pessimistic and we don't embrace the skills and the conversation to develop the future. So if your question's about, you know, how, how might young people, how might kids, how might at universities, you know, it's interesting that you frame science as a possibility. I think a lot of, a lot of content areas, a lot of expertise, whether it be science, I myself, I'm a designer, right? Design has a whole domain about speculative fiction, speculative futures, scenario modeling. I think we do need to invest in the skills of future crafting, articulating new models. And there are several disciplines uh, that, that are in that business, if you will. Maybe they don't think about it or talk about it that way. But I think that I love the idea of even, you know, younger people, whether it's, you know, higher ed, but uh, even children. I mean, one of the seven narratives we focus on in the book is about youth. And Mm. youth has just this kind of, you know, the classic like wide-eyed wonderment of engaging something new for the first time. And somehow our pessimism eradicates wonder from our youthful spirit. And I think it's worth making utopian work a part of our national narrative. I mean, the World's Fair is still strong and thriving, but the U.S. doesn't participate so much anymore, right? Somehow we've kind of eradicated the practice of civic imagination of the future out of our lifestyles and maybe we need to make a whole new space and time in our lives to be in the practice of writing the future together right and i think like we look at you know the current state of our worlds and you have absurd wealth juxtaposed with horrific inequality and we're told like everything's okay line going up the economy's doing great And most people just on a very human level are like, no, that doesn't something feels terribly off with every single thing I look at. I'm looking at a very clear solution to a problem, yet we're told like this absurdity of an option is actually the way we we get out of it when it's just so clear and we keep falling into these same patterns. And it's like as if all of these long held ideas and belief systems that sort of allowed humanity to sort of flourish to this point are absolutely not useful. Like you're saying, this we're sort of like at this tension point where these legacy narratives aren't serving us as well. And in fact, are probably becoming the cause of a lot of dysfunction. Mm. So and because of that, you know, you we talk about this ability to have the, the curiosity, right? And what do you bro- like, what do you sort of see the current state of our ability to sort of reckon with our problems? And how does that sort of tie into the lack of curiosity or, or the need for yeah. radical curiosity that you advocate for? Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the kind of thesis or hypotheses that led to the book 
was my concern that curiosity is becoming an endangered species. And it's a, it's a big idea, mm-hmm. right? Curiosity is one of the core defining characteristics of what makes human beings human. Right. And there's a concern that as I've been privileged to work in almost every sector with leading organizations, that we're really just administrating the knowledge we have. We're managing the models we know. But the inquiry to ask really essential questions about what we don't know or to challenge what we think we know and to, as you suggest, imagine alternatives is like a rare unicorn that you know you just kind of never see in the in the myth of in the clouds and so in part i wrote the book as a kind of manifesto to challenge and call attention to how rare the art and practice of curiosity is i would say one of the things that you in your question that i really like but i would almost you know, challenge and enjoy a little dialogue with you mm-hmm. on is in some ways, you know, part of that, you know, when you say, you know, we, we're told, you know, the numbers are good or this is happening and we just kind of get fed information. I think we seek solutions and we're, we're not so comfortable not knowing, right? So it's not so much that I believe that there's just an easy or even difficult hidden answer and we just need to uncover it. Mm-hmm. Curiosity is really a lifetime practice. So, for example, I I would love a senator or a president to run for office who doesn't have a health care plan, right? So we we put all the talking heads on stage and they say, look on my website, here's my health care bill, here's my education reform bill. Why are we so obsessed with answers? Like they are static destinations. And we're just choosing in a playbook the answers. I wonder if part of what we just need is what if a leader stood up, the CEO of a corporation, the leader in government, whatever it might be, and said, follow me. I don't have the answer, but I would like to launch a process for all of us to experiment with possible solutions together. Hmm. We're obsessed with having the answer. I don't know what we have all the answers and maybe we need some humility to admit we don't know all the answers and we need to commit to the space and time to figure things out together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, uh, when I, when I talk about my education and I think a lot of the blame, probably most of the blame is on my ass, like for just being like, yeah, whatever. Okay. This is what, this is what science is. This is what math is. But like one of the, and then kind of taking a step back and I, I had the opportunity to like be the editor in chief of a website that where we could really like just kind of follow what people were interested in at the the site called cracked and one of the things we discovered is like curiosity really seemed to be something that people craved and Mm. like a lot of the sort of underlying assumptions that i had made and was like sort of in the process of unlearning after my process of like being educated was like 
for instance, in, in the realm of like science and math, like I think I, the assumption I went into my education with and like kind of had reinforced was like, well, science and math have figured everything out. Like we know how everything works. I feel like, you know, that's, and then the thing that got me interested in it again as an adult was the idea that like just learning about all these basic things that science doesn't understand, you know, like instead of having it be a long story in which people are finding finding out the right answer over and over again, like focusing on what just like the philosophical aspects of like quantum physics and quantum mechanics that like we don't understand or, you know, things about human health that we don't understand, you know, why we sleep, what sleep is, why like every animal sleeps, like what, what, what is that? Like why, you know, there's just a lot of like really interesting stuff if you look yeah. at the questions instead of the answers but i think i think our educational system and like there's an inherent narrative impulse we have to focus on the answers and people people crave the questions actually i love that example that's great is there something i cuz i've also heard you know like this idea of we have to per, like we're really focused on the answers right and i think mm. is there's probably something about our humanity that we look at an existential issue and to to know that we can't articulate a solution is probably so frightening that it sort of we're just in a pattern to just go, well, what's the answer rather than mm. this might be something a lot more complex than mm. what the fuck do we do and what's the answer? Right. And I've heard you talk about like Obamacare, right? How was that really a bill? That was about being like, well, how do we pay for this? And what's who, where, where did the cuts come? And what, what, what point did the insurance company pay for this? Who's taking the hit here? Blah, blah, blah. Or is it a larger conversation about what does it mean to be in this country? What healthcare even is? And what's, how are we defining that? Cause right now we're using a lot of wonk uh, legislative speak to sort of talk about something that I feel like is much more is much broader and more integral to human life than something we can, you know, go through like a line by line policy argument. Absolutely. Look, I study social systems. So health is a social system. Mm -hmm. Learning is a social system. Most of business is a social system. We have accidentally, inadvertently, over time, made all of our systems so complicated we don't understand them we don't know how to make them work we've kind of lost the plot i think to your point the example i give on obamacare is what was really going on there for all of the airtime it took up for all of the focus on that supreme court decision and all the anxiety that came after it we weren't even really asking the question right what do we define health to be in our nation what do we want a good, healthy life to look like? We were talking about who gets the invoice, who gets the bill, right? Right. So when we talk about healthcare, we're often we're talking about the plumbing. We're talking about the infrastructure of how the economics move back and forth. And I think what what I'm really interested in is why I, I talk about questioning is it's a way to go further upstream to the real core stuff that matters. And kind of peel back the layers of the onion and kind of 
So, okay, yeah, yeah, that's adorable. Like, that's the People Magazine surface version. We're still just moving the chairs on the Titanic. Let's get to the real stuff. Do we want to live to 100? Do we want all of our resources to pay for the last six months of our lives? Do we want our decision to be when we live and when we die? Do we want it to be our doctors? want it to be our the states? Like, they're real moral questions that we seem, to your point, I love the way you're framing it, almost afraid to really get to the courageous space of talking about the real stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, the more I just start, you know, I've looking at the book and, and your interviews and things like that, I, it does make, I'm always sort of asking myself, like, okay, look, what, what he's saying is sort of like, we need this malleability, right? Is that we're sort of a little, because of our reliance on these legacy narratives, we've become very rigid. So it's just like, question comes in, only one of two answers comes out. Like, and there's no room for anything else. And what we need to advocate for is like, breaking the fuck out of that sort of very rigid paradigm and to say, well, what is what are we talking about? Because for everything we're talking about, like in the news, it's like Trump and stealing documents or student debt relief and things like that. We're avoiding these very simple questions, which a lot of activists are the ones sort of carrying that conversation. I'm like, what do human beings deserve? And what what is our how are we interacting with each other in terms of how we're defining these things? Yeah. And it's yeah. And I find that sort of really fascinating that like we're like this, this, the questions seem really simple right now, but we're completely We're mudding them up in like the most absurd, overly complex debates. So one of the things I looked into as part of the book that has been a personal passion of mine, I think it gets to one part of your framing there is the idea of awe. Right, A W E awe, like the spectacle of awe, seeing the Grand Canyon, you know, seeing a gorgeous piece of artwork, and we're only really recently understanding the psychology and the science of even literally what happens in our our neuroscience, our brain, when we experience awe. So the version, the the kind of interpretive definition that I really latched onto was. You experience awe when you encounter something that is such a vast or big idea. So sometimes the Grand Canyon, the scale brings mm-hmm. you awe, or an idea that conflicts with your previous understanding of the world. So either scale reminds you of your scale, or a concept, an idea that literally disagrees with like how your head has been programmed. And we go, whoa, that blows my mind, right? We say that colloquially, but blow your mind really means actually, it's almost like in neuroscience, literally your mind is having to accommodate and acquire and reprint almost like code in a, in a computer, how to expand your mind, how to reorganize your perception of how the world is. And so awe has this, fascinating way to both be a result of curiosity and spur and grow a greater sense of thirst of curiosity. And what I like about it is that kind of like what you were saying earlier, that it's not like there's, to your point, there's like two, (laughs) there's a question and there's two things that spit out on the other end. We need to kind of physiologically and, and through 
other kind of sensory experiences and put ourselves in uncomfortable contexts to let us experience awe and stretch our perception of the way things are. You know, mm. we're creatures, you know, you hear that colloquial thing, oh, I'm a creature of comfort, I'm a creature of habit, right? We're kind of on autopilot until we put ourselves in physiological, sensory, or intellectually uncomfortable, unrecognizable context. We just think we know it all, to your earlier point about math and science, Jack, right? Yeah. Yeah, that it, and I feel like that was the version of history that also turned me off to history was, well, we know the story and this is the story. And, you know, there's we, we've been talking in recent episodes about the opportunity to discover new ways of living and experiencing human existence through like non-Western histories that like we haven't explored or begun teaching in high school or core college curricula like that, that that stuff could fill libraries. And there's just this assumption that, no, this is the only one that we need to know. And I think there's opportunities there for sure. But I, Absolutely. I think the chasing awe is a good motivating sort of thesis of just like to chase the awe is you're you're always going to be moving in the right direction right right and i'm I'm curious seth like what how what do you see out there now um or maybe there's examples in your book that you'd want to talk about of how you're seeing sort of what you're advocating for actually being put into practice and, and what those outcomes look like because i think right now we've had a very sort of much more like sort of 10,000 foot view of this. But if you if we yeah. drill down and zoom in a little bit, where do, how do you see this sort of adoption of radical curiosity taking shape? Well, I think, you know, it's hard not to acknowledge the arrival and the impact of the pandemic as a part of that question, right? I do think that for as terrible as the pandemic was and how many people passed and and got sick because of it, people in my family, including one of the long-term positive legacies is when you go through an existential crisis, like a pandemic, you have to ask those big questions, those hundred thousand foot questions, right? Like when you can't go to work, you begin to question what work is. When you can't enable your kids to be at school, you have to question what school is. So finally, by constraint, we are confronted by, what did I think these models were and what were they not? And I think to answer your question, just as that's like a little context setting, I do think that the businesses of the past are not gonna survive. I think we're still healing from the pandemic. I think there's a lot of, repair that's going to need to happen. And I think I'm rooting for a genre of social entrepreneurs that maybe have been kind of pushed aside and they like, oh, that's cute. That's activism. That's citizenship. That's some other thing. But, you know, I think we need to like stop like making the 913,000th app of the year, of the month, of the week. (laughs) Right. Mm-hmm. Swipe left for more bullshit, please. It's like, you know what? Right. I'd like someone to work on water and on food. And I think, you know, to your question, Miles, I think 
I'm I'm I started with nutrition because I'm really starting to get interested in food. I think there's a lot of legacy narratives getting shaken to the core. I look at vertical farming. I look at the problems with soil and what nutrients we're accidentally eradicating by farming at scale. I look at seeds that are never coming back. I'm looking at indigenous wisdom that is not being honored and is suddenly being brought into the mainstream. I just think there's such, it's almost like we're kind of back to the basics. Like, I don't think it's, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, like it's not the great resignation, it's the great simplification. I think we kind of just need to say like, interesting. how do we do like, you know, wake up in the morning shit again. Right. You mentioned sleep. Like, you know, there's a lot of ways to deal with sleep. Different parts of the world, sleep is managed very differently. Like, I think we're kind of ready to get back to those human things. And so it's not so much, I don't want to name, I love your question. I don't want to name like this brand or sure. this person, but I mean, I could certainly go there. I, I think there are a lot of pioneers who are just, really shaking things up that the domains that they're shaking are things we thought we were done with. Like, no, we don't know how to feed people at scale, actually. Not in a healthy way, not in a sustainable way. So, you know, I'm I'm rooting for those guys. Nice. Seth, uh, thank you again so much for joining us on the show. It's been a really fantastic conversation. I would love if you could just leave us one uh, one bit of feeling of optimism, because as you talk about, you say the future can be so filled with different possibility and, and positivity. And I'm just if you could leave us with a sentiment uh, from your perspective on what that what that is or what feeling we can hold on to. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think it's an extraordinary time to be alive. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that there's this kind of renaissance of questioning waiting for us and kind of as low-hanging fruit, it's this generation that has the power and the, the, our hands on the button to redesign everything. And how fun is that, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we have in our, in our pockets entirely entire Hollywood film studios that used to take up a thousand acres. We have more tools, more technology, more everything than we ever had. It's just in our hands to decide what we want to point those towards. And I don't see that as a bummer. I don't see that as heavy. I I see that as worth waking up in the morning for. We have more authority to write the story of what comes next than ever. And so it's just deciding, what are you going to ask? Well, Seth, uh, I know I know you have to leave, but it's been great having you. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you, follow you, find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, the our thanks for thanks for that. I appreciate you the dialogue. I love you guys' honesty and, and directness. So it's refreshing. Yeah, the studio and the book can be found on Curiosity and Company. It's Curiosity and dot company. So Curiosity and Co. is really the name of my portfolio of businesses that are experimenting with questioning in all different domains. So uh, it's a good place to find us and connect and cause some trouble. Nice. Is there a work of media or social media you've been enjoying? A work of media. It's not going to be anything that is about a fiction of Hunter Biden by Breitbart News. It's not going to be that. <laughs> all right. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, I, I think it looks pretty cool, but you know, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> Riveting stuff, man. Can't believe that guy. All right, Seth Goldenberg. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Miles and I are going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to uh, wrap things up. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. You like to watch new stuff, right, Zygang? I know I do. Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time, like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump. Join Lisa and her hand-selected staff at Chateau Rosabelle, a glamorous estate in the French countryside, as they live, work, and play together 24-7. Vanderpump Villa is where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. And don't miss the new season of The Kardashians, uh, starring the Kardashians, of course. And season five promises new horizons for the entire Kardashian clan. And if you're looking for steamy streams, check out Grand Cayman Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set on the tropical Caribbean island of Grand Cayman, where the rich come to play. But be warned, it's a small island and secrets don't stay secret for long. So come check out what's new on Hulu this month. It's streaming now and it's waiting for you on Hulu. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And we're back. And yeah, that was that was a very interesting conversation. Uh, if people want to check out more, you can find Seth's book wherever fine books are sold. But yeah, man, I mean, radical that's curiosity, radical curiosity. I feel like I feel like this kid's onto something. It's a double edged sword, you know, because on sometimes you can you think of really cool stuff, and then other times you could be Donald Trump and just make up whole new realities well that was one thing that like when he was talking about the how close we are between like all of the information like the flattening of information it's like yeah but like i i really think a big part of the problem that we have with our ability to like think freely and use our access to information and the flatness of 
you know, information and ability to just like share thoughts is like that that has been used to you know, weaponized. It's been weaponized to like make fascism popular again. So yeah. it's people have an instinctive sort of aversion to the idea of like being creative and questioning notions because we're like news is real, democracy dies in the dark. <laughs> that was me as Kevin citing the New York Times, uh, Kevin from the office. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> Shout out Brian Baumgartner. Yeah, that was Brian Baumgartner. We should have him on. But yeah. ask him only to do Kevin Malone. <laughs> We're joined Legally by Kevin Malone today. Legally, he can't. I've asked him before. Uh, so the front page of Drudge, the only page of Drudge, Drudge Report has mm-hmm. like a big headline that's like Donald Trump, the Don, calls for an uprising of the FBI, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. No, it doesn't mm-hmm. quite seem that dramatic, but it, it seems like he... he he might former president donald trump might be going through something what's what's the latest there uh, we look we've been checking on in on the mar-a-lago sweat fest we liked we like seeing the moments where they're trying to play it cool but clearly sweating through their suits uh but now i mean we're i think we're it's change your name to antonio banderas because you are desperados and you're you are very desperate right now i don't even know if that's the same word in spanish but i'm so. calling you I think desperado. It means lonely which also might be true because yes few, thank you fewer people who I'm, have legal degrees are, are backing them up see i'm sorry i'm using desperate like a 90s middle school bully would right uh, calling somebody desperate that's what's happening but truly I the this is now I think we're about to start to see the the fucking weird shit go down because it's clear now that the back is getting closer to the wall and the explanations and things are getting less elegant or even make sense. You know, ever since that affidavit came out that was redacted, it just became a lot harder to to sort of try and spin away like like having documents that merely having them is a crime like yeah, if you have them, it's a, it doesn't even fucking matter. Like you shouldn't have them. That's a fuck. Your these are the statutes that have been yeah. violated. And a lot of people are like, yeah, like you can't really. Uh, I don't you. understand all the classification shit, but like I did, I did think it was instructive that everybody on that side got real quiet once once yeah. the thing was declassified. Yeah, and and you had more people just kind of be like, yeah, I uh, I, I definitely uh, I uh, would not take those documents <laughs> home with me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a it's a, like Roy Blunt, I think, was the latest senator to be like, yeah, that would not be me. And you know, the legal team has had trouble. Like, the, even a, a Trump appointed judge was like, "Bro, you did not submit like anything that like resembled a legal filing. Like, can you go back and do that shit? Like, like <laughs> I can't even do this for y'all." So it is getting a little wacky. Uh, Lindsey Graham, meanwhile, his words have been amplified across the internet and media because he basically came out and with all his chest out, all caps, basically being like, "If Trump is indicted, there will be riots in the streets." Mm. And you're like, oh, that's not a legal strategy. Uh, Sounds like a really (laughs) sloppy thread. Okay. And then Trump went a step further on Payless Twitter to say his thing. This man went full Make-A-Wish Foundation on us with his like blue sky treatment of what the future should be because he is facing a possible indictment. This is from Payless Twitter. At Real Donald Trump said, quote, 
So now it comes out conclusively that the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, knowing that if they didn't, quote, Trump would have easily won the 2020 presidential election. What he's talking about, he's referencing Zuck's appearance on Joe Rogan, where he talked about Mm. how intelligence was like telling Facebook, like, hey, man, watch out for that misinformation, bro. Don't be just fucking pushing that shit out. And because he considered that and was like, yeah, well, we didn't think it was going to be a good look. He's basically saying, like, look what they did to me. Uh, And also pointing to this very convenient concept or idea that people believe, which is like, if they heard about the laptop, Trump would have won in a landslide. That's what actually happened. It wasn't actually stolen. Now, the new explanation is the Hunter Biden story got buried. That's why Trump lost. So I'll continue his rant. He his solution is, quote, this is massive fraud and election interference at a level never seen before in our country. Remedy, (laughs) colon, declare the. Declare the rightful winner or, and this would be the minimal solution, declare the 2020 election irreparably compromised and have a new election immediately. Hell yeah. All right, bro. All right, bro. All right, bro. Uh Uh-huh. Declare the, this, my man said, (laughs) say I'm the fucking president or we need to have a do-over election right now. Mm. I do recognize my own like feelings when I was in my Russia gate bag and being like, well, they should do a do over because they cheated. Yeah. 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 And that's just not how it works. Unfortunately, uh, it is much more fun to be on this side of the, uh, bat shittery. Yeah. Well, this one is definitely like, (laughs) like this, this guy's trying to be like, yo, I didn't commit crimes. (laughs) Call me the president now. (laughs) What? That's literally like the most, if you distill this down, this is such a fucking weird, weird moment. And it goes along with more reporting from the, the Trump whisperer, Maggie Haberman, who is talking about just how some of these documents were like schlepped around when he was in office. This quote, Box of, boxes of documents even came with Trump on foreign travel, following him to hotel rooms around the world, including countries considered foreign adversaries of the United States. Quote, there was no rhyme or reason. It was classified documents on top of newspapers, on top of papers people printed out of things they wanted him to read. The boxes were never organized, Stephanie Grisham said. Quote, he'd want to get work done on long trips, so he just rummaged through the boxes. That was our filing system. Wow. So, man, I thought I would be sloppy as a politician, but this dude is really... Where's the box? Where's the box <laughs> and this stuff? Be my box. Okay. Just papers. Okay, what's in here? From the okay, top. what's this? Nope, that's a bill. What's this? Okay, <laughs> this is a this is a cable from an intercepted. Nope, that's also, that's another bill. Uh, give me the other box immediately. <laughs> yeah. What so. did he? What did he think he was doing? Like what, he just like just the the proximity, like the fetishization of important president like important presidential documents was such that he could he just thought a box full of random documents would be like he could just reach in there and be doing official presidential business is that kind of i think or it's just like his safety blanket like to know like if shit ever goes down i got that thing on me right yeah, which maybe is like if i'm if i got the docs then i can maybe flip them abroad if i need to to do whatever i don't know it's it's really hard to uh to see into his mind. But what is clear is that white supremacy and his privilege has completely destroyed his sense of reality and what is or is not how to how to 
act <laughs> like in a situation like this. They also wrote that like people at DOJ are like the like the attorneys at DOJ are like he's talking to Merrick Garland like he's just some political foe right. rather than like the attorney general. And like he's also like they're like you're using tactics that just do not apply in this context. They may have worked when you were in office, but surely like now you're you're just you're just Donald with the loose papers. <laughs> Donald with the loose papers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's he he's been an escape artist uh, who uses those tools of yeah. white supremacy and privilege and you know, America's hidden class system to get out of, you know, trouble over and over and over and over again and lie and, you know, use those lies to perpetuate his career. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, he, he used to, he, at any time he, somebody threatens to tell the truth about him, he threatens the lawyers with like lawsuits and stuff that always scare lawyers because they're, they're a flighty bunch. They're, yeah, they're not, terrified. Not so, working so well now. I don't know. I mean, this motherfucker could skate anyway, so <laughs> right. don't hold your breath, folks. I mean, the riots if prosecuted thing, like, that does seem to be the, like, that. that's what I've heard lots of places, not just from Lindsey Graham, of like, well, this is why you never, you can't, like, prosecute a former president because then you become... Like not America or something. Or something. Yeah, no. Nah. Like above that, just like just, that. Hey, I'm no Lord of the Rings. I'm no Sauron fan, right? <laughs> that tweet. Exactly. But like, I'm not worried about what Sar the reaction that people are. You throw the ring of power in the fucking fuck mad. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. But yeah, I mean, this is like everything. Like even like those psychologists who study extremism and stuff and like uh, gangs and things are like, you have to show that there are consequences or the yeah. thinking goes even further spirals further and further yeah. and further. Can't just uh -huh. keep being like, well, America, American exceptionalism prevents us from prosecuting a former president is like, well, the former president is doing crimes openly. So at this yeah. point, yeah. and if that's the cheat shit, then I'm running for office in 2024. I'll show you all go. some fucking I mean, lack should, of moral scruples. But not for that reason, but <laughs> I'm the new King Ralph. Of America. <laughs> All right. Well, that's been an episode. Yes, Our guest yes. has already left us, but I have not asked you where people can find you, oh, follow you, and what's you a tweet that you've been enjoying. You honor me, Yo Jack Horseman. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Miles of Gray. Also, check out Miles and Jack Got Mad Boosties. The fucking NBA season draws closer and closer. We're we're feeling optimistic, cynical, pessimistic, everything uh, all mm. at once. Yeah. It's a fantastic time. Also, uh, come check me out on 420 Day Fiance also if you like reality TV. Uh, some tweets that I like. First one is from at Blair Saki. And it's at Blair Saki. She just tweeted every single time with a single yeah. teardrop cry emoji. And it's like her in a dating app. And someone just this dude's messaging her. First message from this guy is stand up. Blair responds, yes. The guy responds, that's awesome. Everyone tells me I should do stand-up. I winged an open mic night one time and almost got attacked by the woke mob. And then, like, the three <laughs> dots in typing progress things right. below it. It's like, oh, yep. no, no. Yep. Nope, 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 nope. I winged one. I'm pretty funny, actually. Uh, it's just a woke mob. Yeah. Dang oh, woke Jesus. Mob. And then uh, at Young Titty tweeted, 
okay, I'll bite. What's a warrant for my arrest? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of that energy going around right now. Also, shout out Lacey Mosley. Uh, Anna posted a picture of her doing a keynote, uh, showing some love. It's all love to Lacey. Uh, always good to see her growing. Mm-hmm. And also, oh, shout out to Niall Holden on Twitter who sent me that tweet about the John Spartan like cryogenically frozen figure from Planet Hollywood ended up in an estate oh, sale in the Australian God. outback. Oh, would have loved True to see that terror like yeah. that. Yeah, it's a, it's the nude Sylvester Stallone in ice from Demolition Man, mm-hmm. and it is, but like up close, it's appears to be melting it's and very wild. lifelike, but also, you know, very, real uncanny valley shit. Yeah, like he's like tied to a hand truck, like a weird S and M torture device or something. It's very <laughs> odd look. Anyway. Uh, shout out to y'all for knowing my interest in tweeting them at me, which is Demolition Man. couple tweets. Sarah York tweeted, I love how barista is the job conservatives bring up as a lazy slacker job when one shift at a moderately busy Starbucks would have them crouched between stacks of milk crates sobbing in the back room. The Jana G tweeted, has it occurred to Thomas that he might be the problem? And it's this picture of like a section at a bookstore and all the books. So it's this guy, Thomas Erickson is the author, surrounded by setbacks. Next book, Thomas Erickson, surrounded by narcissists or how to stop other people's egos from ruining your life. Next book, surrounded by psychopaths. How to protect yourself from being manipulated and exploited in business and life. Thomas Erickson. And then finally by Thomas Erickson. Surrounded by idiots. The four types of human behavior or how to understand those who cannot be understood. So, yeah, maybe Thomas needs to look within. Uh, And then finally, Noah Garfinkel tweeted, I wish room temperature water was as cold as room temperature coffee. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore O'Brien. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Zeitgeist. We're at The Daily Zeitgeist on Instagram. We have a Facebook fan page and a website, dailyzeitgeist.com, where we post our episodes and our footnotes, where we link off to the information that we talked about in today's episode, as well as a song that we think you might enjoy. Uh, Miles, what song do we think people might enjoy? Uh, I was listening to Sumo Hair, who is a like Afro-Mexican artist uh, from Guerrero, Mexico, but then grew up in Long Beach. Uh, I didn't. He passed away tragically earlier this summer. I had no idea, and I was listening to his album, Tropical Gold. But this is a track from that album, Por El Suelo, which is, I mean, his, his, he's just very dancey, sort of like sample based, uh, like music using like sampled, like Afro indigenous sing, singing or percussion and things like that. It's just got really good, like texture and heart to it. I mean, like a really just inelegant way to, to compare his music is like if Moby had some swag to him a little bit and was like sampling other shit uh, i only say that because you're kind of me- me- like mixing electronic with like really good samples and things like that but this is sumo hair with por el suelo i don't know what you're talking about moby has the most swag of anyone <laughs> find a new angle <laughs> find a new angle the daily zeitgeist is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite shows That's going to do it for us this morning. Back this afternoon to tell you what's trending. And we'll talk to you all then. Bye. Bye. 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 